0: Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do shine in all that's fair. We thank you that though the wrong seems so strong in our world, that you are the ruler, that we can trust you, and we look forward to the day when earth and heaven are one, as you intended that to be. Lord, would you speak to us now through your word? We pray that you would help us to hear and understand and apply what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. The gain will have to go down on the mic. When was the last time that you cried? Last decade, last year, last month, last night? When was the last time you got hurt physically or emotionally? When was the last time that death haunted you, your friends or your family? Every time sorrow, pain, or death hits us is a reminder that things are not how they're meant to be. Think of crying. Whether we're crying because of physical pain or because of a, a fight we had with a family member or because of anxiety or depression or because of loneliness or failure or because of a death, or because of simple disappointment these are all echoes of the curse and people being cast out of paradise without that without that that would not happen otherwise this is not how god created the world or his people to be So it's wonderful to know that this is also not how God will leave his world or his people. God will step in, renew his creation, redeem his people, and restore what has been lost. Graham Goldsworthy says, The new heaven and the new earth, described by John in Revelation 21 and 22, is the resolution of all conflict, suffering, and meaningless in life. There can be no longer any deficiencies in the relationship between God, man, and the created order. And we may wonder, well, could there really ever be something so good, so wonderful? It seems too good to be true. But I'm here to tell you today Yes, if God is good and all-powerful and his word is faithful and true, then yes, this is not just possible, this is inevitable. All things must be made new. And we need to take hold of this hope and let it radically change the way we live today. So go ahead and open up in a Bible to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, second last chapter in the Bible. Super easy to find. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the entire book of Revelation, actually the entire Bible, has been awaiting this passage. It's been pointing ahead to this moment. Everything converges here. And in recent chapters, we've seen Christ return and reign on earth. We've seen him defeat all the enemies of God and his people, including the devil, death itself. And at the end of chapter 20, we saw the coming judgment day when all people will be judged before God's throne. But in verse 11 there, we saw God's judgment go far beyond just people. We read this last week. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky, fled away, and no place was found for them. And that's believed to be the final destruction of this created order, this universe, which is described multiple times in Scripture, perhaps most famously in Second Peter, which says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here in Revelation 21, John sees a vision of this coming to pass. This happening. Look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. As much as we may love this world, and we feel the call to care for it, and rightly so, I am positive we won't miss it at all, considering what replaces it. (laughs) Since I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. What we have now is, as C.S. Lewis called it, the shadow lands. What we will have then is more real, more beautiful, more vivid, more solid. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Like Just imagine what a sight this will be. An entirely new cosmos spoken into being. One that has never been touched by evil, sin, corruption, destruction, pollution, or death. I think of the beauty, the scenery, how pristine and, and perfect it must be. I imagine mountains and rivers and waterfalls, forests, canyons, clouds auroras galaxies beyond belief however something revelation says won't be there is the sea you see that it said the first earth heaven and first earth have passed away and the sea was no more why is that does god have something against beaches and surfing and cruises <laughs> no this is symbolic. There may or may not be literal oceans or seas. Remember how the Bible uses the sea to represent chaos. It's seen as the main source of evil and disorder. The beast rises from the sea earlier in Revelation. It, it's the, the void of nothingness that the world was created from. And in people's experience, it's where typhoons and hurricanes and tsunamis and floods come from. There being no more sea means that there are no more forces of chaos and evil in the new creation. There's no more disorder. Everything is ordered and at peace. That's interesting. That as we approach the tail end of the Bible, this is clearly not the end of the story. This is a new beginning, a new creation. A new Genesis 1 1 without the looming curse. I love how Eugene Peterson explains this. He says the biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word. It's again like what C.S. Lewis describes at the end of the Narnia book series, where he says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The main thing to to note in verse 1 is this is really going to happen. Is all creation groaning? It is. We're groaning. But is a new creation coming? It is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. It is coming. And then, in verse 2, we see that the new creation is Holy and beautiful. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion occupies a special place throughout Scripture. However, overall, cities weren't looked upon so favorably in Scripture. Even Jerusalem one theologian says that the Bible sees cities as an anti God reality. From the earliest days, cities were centers of independence, arrogance, or violence. Think of Babel, Sodom, Gomorrah, Jericho, Tyre, Sidon, Rome, and of course, Babylon. So, it can be somewhat surprising to see now a city coming down from heaven. But that's the point. This is meant to contrast with all those cities of man. This is the city of God. It's it's different than all other cities. It's holy. It's perfect. Daryl Johnson says, this is the city we city builders have longed to build. It's a city with... True foundations whose designer and builder is God. But what exactly does this city, this new Jerusalem, represent? Is it just a, a literal city floating down with buildings and streets and landscaping? Or is it a symbol of something else or something more such as God's people? After all... We were called the bride of Christ in chapter 19. And here, the city is. Now, I have a, a feeling that both ideas are actually present here in the New Jerusalem. Much like the city it's contrasted with, of Babylon, it can re- represent both a people and a place. Like it's, a, it's a people in that the city is Christ's bride, just as we are Christ's bride but it's also a place where God dwells and that God's people will inherit I also think there's another image here though representing the the reunification of heaven and earth like think of how a marriage is a permanent union between two parties this is a marriage of heaven coming down and being united to the earth I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And even more than heaven and earth, really this is a reuniting of God and man. I believe that's actually the the main emphasis of the first few verses here, that God's glorious new creation will reunite us with God's presence and person. God's glorious new creation will reunite us with God's very presence, his very person. They saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice again the direction of movement. This is not us flying up to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth. And notice again the the glory and the beauty of the picture. It's why the city is pictured as a bride. It's prepared and adorned for the groom. It's beautified. It's decked out. Think of how much preparation goes into getting a bride ready for her wedding, even today. We spare no cost in a dress and a ring and Hair and makeup and nails and flowers and more. Ephesians 5 talks about Christ preparing us, the church, for a wedding day. Sanctifying us, cleansing us, washing us. To present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Revelation 21 is the completion of this. Fulfillment. Believer, did you know that as part of the church you are being prepared right now. That Christ is, is working away at, at cleansing you of sin and dressing you in holiness. One day, did you know that you'll be part of this dazzling picture. I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We have a hard time imagining how glorious this will be. But think of perhaps some of the most beautiful cities on earth. See? And then think bigger than that. Right? Think of the architecture of Dubai, or Singapore, or Paris except more spectacular, far more. We don't actually know how, exactly how literal to take the image of a city, but one thing is for sure, the new Jerusalem is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams. Your breath will be taken away, and you will never, ever want to leave. You won't because of the reuniting, the marriage union of heaven and earth, that this then happens. Look at verse 3. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Goldsworthy claims that this one verse could be said to sum up and to contain the entire message of the Bible. The whole of the history of the covenant and of redemption lies behind this glorious affirmation, the dwelling of God is with men. It's definitely a recurring theme right throughout Scripture. God choosing to dwell with man. I think all the way back at the beginning, God first created a garden where he could walk with Adam and Eve, relating to us in a personal and intimate way. Later, God had his people build a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness, where his presence, his Shekinah glory could reside. Later, that became the temple in Jerusalem, where Solomon would marvel. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so they recognized that there were limitations to an earthly dwelling place for God. God's real presence showed up in these places, but it was limited, in a limited way. The temple was eventually lost. But God promised to restore his presence one day. Such as in Ezekiel 37, where he said, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The fullest expression of God dwelling with man so far came in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. After Christ left earth, he sent the Spirit to dwell inside believers. We're the temple now. And then finally, Revelation 21 picks up all these threads and tells us that this is God's ultimate goal to dwell with us. Been so all along, to have us. Live in his presence with him. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's moved into the neighborhood here. He's made his home with us. Again, we may have difficulty grasping the, the significance or the magnitude of this. But this is what we were made for. This is the ultimate filling of the God-shaped hole we all have. Whether or not we realize it, God is the fulfillment of all our greatest longings. Jeremy René says, the best part of the new creation is is that God himself will live with his people. It is God's presence that makes heaven so heavenly, and that will make the new creation the best place ever. In fact, Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God in John 17. God's people will enjoy eternal life because they will know God face to face. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This means that we will belong to him forever, never to be alone, or unloved, or unknown again. We long for love, peace, comfort, joy all of these we'll find in God. We'll be his people. He'll be our God forever near and with us. There'll be no greater blessing than to receive the presence and person of God himself. But perhaps to, to show us just how amazing that will be, look at what God's presence will mean the absence of, in verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so, what we see is that God's glorious new creation will reunite us with God's person and presence, which will mark the end of everything sad. God's new creation, because he'll dwell with us, will mark the end, of the final end of everything sad. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now think about that. We usually wipe our own tears away. When was the last time someone else wiped away your tears maybe a a spouse or a significant other has wiped tears from your face before but i'd bet that most of us would have to think way back to a parent doing so to us as a child this is so incredibly personal compassionate that God Himself will wipe away our tears. He doesn't just tell us to stop crying or, or have an angel hand out some Kleenex. He wipes away the tears pooling in our eyes or streaking down our cheeks. You may wonder what tears are these? What would we be crying about? We don't know exactly. Maybe it's earthly sorrows or suffering, the residual pain and grief from those, maybe death. Maybe seeing the tragic portion of God's judgment of hell play out before this. Whatever the case, this implies that there will be no more need for tears in God's presence. No one on earth escapes crying. And no matter how tough you think you are, No matter how wealthy, rich, famous, accomplished, or strong you are, sadness persists. It remains with us. I'm sure that Bill and Melinda Gates shed some tears over their recent divorce. I'm sure, positive, Queen Elizabeth certainly cried when Prince Philip passed away last month. Or remember the the long line of the strong basketball greats weeping at Kobe Bryant's funeral. On this side of glory, every person's life will contain sorrow and pain and grief. Every family will be touched by tears and mourning and death at times. Therefore, is this not an incredible, immense comfort to us today? No matter how hard you've cried or are crying... Or will cry. Your tears will end. God wipes them away. Your tears will end. So will death itself. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Like living forever is really beyond our finite brain's comprehension. But. God is the originator and source of life itself. Jesus is the life. So, dwelling in his presence means death cannot be there. Death cannot touch us anymore. And death, you think, is likely the greatest source of sorrow out there. It shall be no more. Gone. Can you even imagine? Not fearing for your kid's safety. Not fretting over your own health. Not hiding from diseases. Not dreading. Not grieving your, your parents aging or dying. That's what God's glorious new creation will mean for us. yet there's not even going to be any source of sorrow or sadness sticking around this will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and just think through what you've gone through in your life Every sickness or illness or cancer, your own or others around you. Every physical ache, every migraine, every injury, every labor pain, every abuse you've endured, every broken heart, your broken relationship every broken marriage, every devastating loss, maybe of a job or a home or business or money, every conflict or fight, every time you've hurt someone else, every biting word, every moment of deep shame or guilt over what you've done, every past trauma, Every funeral you've attended or gravesite you've visited. Then think of Jesus turning every last sorrow on its head, banishing them forever. What will life be like then? When... You never need experience anything like that ever again. Isaiah foresaw a day for God's people when everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Yes, Sam Gamgee, in fact, everything sad is going to come untrue. (laughs) Dare you hope? I hope so. Because this precious hope gives us strength to carry on now. Like, this is not escapism in any way. This empowers us to live differently now. We need this now. Like, I think of, of those in our church family that are hurting right now. Like, you, there, there are many. Like, you need this hope Now. Glorious. Paul Tripp wrote a poem called Taken. I'm going to post the whole thing for you later today online. But in the poem, he lists out so many of the things that get taken away from us in life. And how that leads to to so much sorrow. And yet, how we're not beyond hope. And he says this. This is partway through. He says, Taken. Disease is a thief, war is a thief, violence is a thief, accidents steal from us. Taken, pieces of life, pieces of family, pieces of history, pieces of our hearts. Taken, hopes and dreams, plans undone, love's history left. Taken is not the story's end. You were taken violence at night, stolen away, separated from loved ones, despised and rejected, hanged in public shame. In your taking, grief will be taken, pain will be taken, mourning will be taken, sadness will be taken, loss will be taken, death will be taken, victory will live forever, and with it, Everlasting love, everlasting peace, everlasting joy, everlasting life, never again to be taken. We could stop right there, even end our Bibles right there, and I think our hearts would be filled, but John's vision of our future with the Lord continues on. And with it, we gain more insight into how glorious God's new creation will be. See, God's glorious new creation will give us God's life and love guaranteed. God's glorious new creation will give us God's life and love. He guarantees it. Now listen attentively as God himself speaks up here. In verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said... Behold, I am making all things new. Now, question How many things are included in all things? All things. Everything in our lives right now gets old, wears out, dies, needs replaced. It's a a law of nature, right? Entropy always increases, things always decay. The clothes we wear, vehicles we drive, the buildings we're in wear down and wear out. Our bodies are constantly aging and dying off. Food spoils, wood rots or burns, metals rust or tarnish, toys break. All life forms, from humans to animals to plants to bacteria, have a life cycle. It won't be so in the new creation. But in order to get there, creation requires an overhaul, a transformation. And that's what God does here as he brings newness to all things restoring us to our original glory and more, remaking the new earth for us to live in, renewing all life and materials and resources to a glorified state. Behold, I am making all things new. Can you imagine? If you struggle to believe that this will happen, God gives his personal guarantee. says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, this is going to happen. It's guaranteed by God. All his words are 100% trustworthy and true. Really, the question is, we either trust him or we don't. He is trustworthy and true. Verse 6 says, And he said to me, It is done. What's done? Much like Jesus' cry of it is finished, it means that God's work is done. Even though Jesus finished what was necessary for salvation on the cross, it doesn't mean that every struggle and sorrow in life ended there. Not at all. And we have enjoyed, even now, so many gospel promises in reality, but only in taste. But on this day, when God makes all things new, it will all be done. God began the work, and God will finish the work, just as he is the beginning and ending defined. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the and the end. Now that title of God's, also given back in chapter 1, frames the whole book of Revelation. It implies God's sovereignty, his power as the sole origin and destination of all things. He was in charge at the beginning and he will still be in charge. He will be in control at the end. Yet again, we sense not just how powerful God is, but also how much He cares for His people. As it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In John 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman to ask Him for living water and said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. water of life in Revelation seems to refer to that life. Life itself. Life to the fullest. Life eternal. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What do we need in order to be given such a beautiful gift? We need to need it. We need to be thirsty for it. Feel thirsty today for what only God can give you? Has this life let you down? Left you unsatisfied? Or maybe has this life wet your appetite for joy? And leaving you wanting more. Either way, you desire it and you ask for it, God will give you life. And He gives it freely to us without payment or without cost because it was not without cost to the one who provided it. It cost Jesus His life. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You want it? Thirst and come to Jesus today. Let him give you drink and satisfy you and give you hope for the future. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Continuing on, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. To conquer or to overcome has been a frequent theme in Revelation. We conquer or win by staying true to Jesus and enduring to the end. By staying faithful to him in the midst of opposition or suffering or death. So, if you're a true believer and remain faithful, you'll inherit all God's blessings described here. But, it's the promise at the end of verse 7 that gets overlooked much too easily, where it says, And I will be his God, and he will be my son. You might be confused by the gender-specific title of son, but that's very intentional. In Bible times a son almost always followed in the footsteps of their father. They inherited the the family name, they took up the family business, whatever it was. Like If your dad was a, a doctor or a farmer or a teacher, you became a doctor or a farmer or a teacher. But to be a son of someone was to be permanently associated with them, to bear their likeness, even their character. Your father gave you your identity. And so to be a son of God was hugely significant, and talking about a lot more than just biology or genetics. Like Israel had been called God's son, as had a number of different individual believers over the years. Of course, Jesus was the ultimate Son of God, perfectly reflecting God's character. But for us now, men or women, to be now we called sons of God is incredible. We really already are sons of God by adoption. Jesus has already brought us into the family. But do we perfectly reflect God yet? No. Do we represent him as we ought? Do we wholeheartedly carry out the work of our Father? Do we bear his likeness to the fullest? What this verse tells us is that one day we will. One day we will. We will finally reflect his image Perfectly. As D.A. Carson says, we will be like him in every way that human beings can be or ought to be like God. We will be like God. (laughs) So wish that were true right now. But I can look forward to this day and pray for it to come soon. The day that I am given God's life, water of life, and God's love as his son. I will be his God and he will be my son. And it's that beautiful reality that makes what comes next such a painful contrast. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Seems alarming or severe to you. But remember we looked at last week when we learned that hell, the lake of fire, will be punishment, but it is also protection of God's new creation. And that's especially clear here when it's held up in contrast to it. The point is that that God's glorious new creation will give us God's life and love, guaranteed, as it will be protected from everything destructive. God's glorious new creation will be protected from everything sinful and destructive. Last week, we discussed hell at some length and how hell is both justified and and logical how hell is not just heaven's opposite but it's a really a power that's invaded and corrupted earth that heaven and earth have been torn apart by sin and evil and hell but God is working to reconcile heaven and earth to bring them back together which is what we see here in order to do that though evil and hell have to be removed from the world and God gives people every opportunity to repent You have been even given an opportunity today to receive his living water. But for those who refuse to repent to the bitter end, God will have no choice but to remove them. Otherwise, his new heavens and new earth would not be holy, but also corrupted by evil. As Joshua Ryan Butler illustrates, to bring sin into God's city is to bring our old lovers into God's honeymoon suite. And our old lovers want to tear that suite apart. Sin is the destructive force that caused the problem in the first place, the power from which God redeems creation. Our world is redeemed from sin and to God. For God to ignore unrepentant sin in the new creation would be to make a farce of redemption. And that's why verse 8 is a necessity here and why it's actually a good thing that this happens because God will protect his new creation from anything that can destroy it. For the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexual immorals, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And of course you worry, but that list includes me. Yeah, me too. I'm on that. I mean, ignoring the first seven things, lying alone. Wouldn't all liars include everyone? It's scary. But that's not John's point at all here. He's actually trying to encourage those who are saved, while at the same time challenging them to remain faithful to the Lord. But this list is not saying that the believers in Christ who sometimes struggle with these sins are damned. This is a list of sins and behaviors that characterize those who are not saved. There are These are actually eight sins that were specifically mentioned earlier in Revelation at different points. Now he brings them all together in one list. And really what the point is, John is telling the early church, like listen, you you have been oppressed by faithless people. They've threatened to kill you. They have killed you in some cases. They've pressured you to compromise sexually or idolatrously. They've lied about you. In heaven, You don't need to worry about any of that anymore. See, this is a list of destructive things that will be prevented from harming God's new world. So, if you are not in Christ, then yes, be forewarned. I plead with you to turn to Jesus. But if you're in Christ, not only are you forgiven of these sins and will be delivered from these sins, but one day you will never even struggle with these sins again. As a son of God, these sins will absolutely not characterize you anymore. You'll reflect him. Which means... Our own sins won't even be allowed to harm God's kingdom. That's good news. (laughs) Butler compares this story of the new creation and God's protection of it to familiar stories we know all around us. He says this. We want this story to be true. We want the good prince to come and take Cinderella to the ball. And we do not find it surprising when the wicked stepsisters, who have been trying throughout the story to keep this from happening, slink bitterly away at the end, outside the story's dramatic center. We want Luke Skywalker to lead the rebels' strike against the Empire, and we have no problem rejoicing in the final victory party as the Emperor's forces fade out of center view into the sidelines. Fairy tales bear witness to our hope in this dramatic narrative structure. Jesus' return bears this same dramatic narrative structure. The king is returning to establish his matchless kingdom, and all those forces that stand opposed to that kingdom, though they currently dominate our world, will fade from center view and slink to the sidelines, never again to hurt or destroy the flourishing peace of God's new creation. If God's good kingdom is to be established upon the earth, a kingdom characterized by holiness, justice, and love, and if evil is a divisive, aggressive parasite that seeks to do violence to God's benevolent purposes for his world, then something must be done about evil. For it will not be content to coexist in the new Jerusalem as a disgruntled but quiet roommate. If God is to redeem... Evil must be expelled and a boundary placed to protect God's holy city from evil's imperial intentions. God's intention, though, is to bless us with overflowing life and then protect that life from all harm. And guess what? This story ain't no fairy tale. This story is true. Then I saw, saw, behold, behold, I am making all things new. See it? Turn the eyes of your heart there, get your attention there. May this comfort our souls, may this fuel our zeal hope and courage yes everything sad will come untrue because our God is trustworthy and true Heavenly Father help us trust you turn our hearts to the glories of your new creation of the new heavens and new earth Help us anticipate and hope and yearn for this day. Pray for this day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need you. Fill us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.